Good guys and bad guys, a tale as old as time. We are taught to identify good guys and bad guys in the stories that we like, whether we're watching television, movies, reading a book, listening to music. We are looking to see who is the good guy and the bad guy. And we look for clues early and often because we don't want to be caught rooting for the one who ends up as the evil one in the end. We want to be on the side that is right and good. And so we have this way of talking about good and evil in the sort of genres that we interact with, and we're given clues so that we can identify with good constantly. And so there are uh, characters that are good and bad that we identify with or root against as we watch. For example, if you were to read To Kill a Mockingbird, you would want to root for Atticus Finch. If you were to watch Harry Potter, you would root against Lord Voldemort. And there's hints very early that he is evil. In the Hunger Games, we scorn and we root against the capital. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we fear and hope to see the demise of Thanos. But at the same time, we watch those movies and we identify with and decide to choose sides between Captain America and Iron Man. Maybe Black Panther is your favorite. On and on and on. We watch movies and we interact or read books or whatever between good and evil, wanting ourselves to side with good. There's a whole list of uh, evil bad guys, quote-unquote bad guys, throughout the history of American pop culture. I'm going to read a list of them, and I'm not even going to tell you where most of them are from, but my guess is you know them and they immediately cause feelings within you. Darth Vader, Hannibal Lecter, Hans Gruber, The Joker, Freddy Krueger, Biff Tannen, Scar, J.R., Norman Bates, Mr. Potter. You know them as the bad guy, you know them as evil. And as you interact with their stories, whether watching Dallas or It's a Wonderful Life, you tend to root against them. But there's a new emerging character that's being explored deeply in American pop culture that is a fascinating sort of merging of the good and the bad guy. You could call it the anti-hero if you want. The ones that you find yourself rooting for even though you know they're deeply flawed and maybe even have some evil in them. Some of these characters might be Michael Corleone, Walter White, Jack Sparrow, Michael Scott, Dr. House, 
Batman, Wolverine, Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> King Kong, James Bond, Catwoman, Sherlock Holmes. They're not necessarily good people. Some of them are deeply entrenched in evil things. And yet the way the story is told, you find yourself rooting for them, hoping that they escape. Maybe you just want them to escape so you can have the next episode, but yet the story is twisted in such a way that you know there's problems with them. You know they're problematic, you know they're sinful, you might even know they're evil. And yet for some reason you want them to win. They are your protagonist. This is the anti-hero. And history sometimes doesn't even look kindly upon the hero. In fact, I mentioned Atticus Finch. When you read To Kill a Mockingbird, you want to be that guy. In fact, I had friends my age who named their son Atticus because they read this book in school and identified with him. But when Harper Lee, the author, died, the family released some previously unreleased material, and Atticus doesn't look so good in that book. He struggles with racism and seems to be short-sighted. And the more we learn about him, the more his character potentially becomes problematic. These deeply flawed characters resonate. They resonate, I think, because while we always want to be on the side of good and on the right side of history, as it's talked about today, as we want to be seen as a good person and we want to identify with good people and we want to be shaped into being a good person, we often know as well that there's a wrestling within us between good and evil. And so when we see our characters wrestling with good and evil, I think we're able to identify ourselves in there a little bit. This might actually be a healthier way to engage with stories when we read books, when we watch movies, when we listen to TV, when we listen to music, when we listen to podcasts, is we'll see the balance between good and evil because in, in a world where Captain America is just so pure and good and makes the right choices over and over, like we can root for Captain America and like him, but it might just skew the way we understand good and evil. It may even skew our ability, inability to see flaws or to even wrestle with our own evil that may be seen in the story. You see, pop culture uses images from the real world to give us a picture that causes us to immediately pick sides. Now, decisions are made long before you ever go to the movie theater, pick up the book, or listen to a CD that try to bring out feelings within you. This is done in ways that are never spoken, but it creates within us a way that we read and experience the world. I'll give you just an example. I want to bring you back to a time that I never saw never knew, but some of you did. The 1970s. The 1970s, which seems like it wasn't that long ago, but it was a world in which science fiction was taking off and a movie caught the attention of young people everywhere, Star Wars. Now, Star Wars was put out before I was born, so now when I watch it, I'm like, it's kind of hard for me to understand. Like, that seemed like great technology at the time, right? But you watch, like, the first Star Wars now, and the story holds up, the characters are still interesting, but technology just moved so much in the last 45 years, right? 
But also in the 70s, you have to remember one thing that's really, really interesting is that the political situation of the world was such that it was just 30 years before that World War II had happened, and it was now center to the Cold War, where there was this battle about whose worldview was going to win on the other side of World War II. And so when the makers of Star Wars are trying to conceive what their, what their hyper-villain is going to look like so that you, it is conveyed to you immediately, this person is evil, and they don't have to do any work with dialogue to tell you this, they begin to think about what their audience would understand as evil. And so they begin to think of Nazi soldiers right away. And so check out this picture of the Stahlhelm. This was the helmet that, uh, that Nazi soldiers would wear during World War II. It has a pretty unique shape. It's the Stahlhelm. And so then they began to think, okay, what would it look like if someone had a Stahlhelm on, it's a German word for helmet, right? But also a gas mask. And they found this in soldiers for Germany in World War II. Now, you can begin to see how a costume is shaping up here, right? And they thought, okay, well, what about if someone had a stall helm, a gas mask, and was dressed like a samurai? Well, what do you have when you have a stall helm, a gas mask, and a samurai? They didn't need to do a single bit of work in dialogue or storytelling in Star Wars for you to know that Darth Vader was evil. That man shows up on the scene in whatever year it was, 1977 when the movie came out, and they played a little bit of uh, scary music underneath. Boom, 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 boom. And he looks like that, dressed in all black, looking like a Nazi samurai with a gas mask on. You knew he was evil. You knew he was the bad guy right away. No extra work need be done. You identified him as the bad guy, and you immediately began to wonder, what is he doing to create mayhem? Now, in a world where stories are told in two hours or a few chapters, conservation of words is important, so images become important. And when we go to read or watch or engage with any kind of media, we pick up images in order to identify who the bad guy and good guy is. And the people who write stories know this, and they try to give you clues. Sometimes they give you false clues. But they try to play on your preconceived notions in order to try to understand what is happening here. Now, why do I tell all that? I'm not here to give you a high school English lesson. I'm not here to talk about pop culture, right? Clearly, I want to talk about the scripture. But I think it's really important as we look into the Minor Prophets to set ourselves up to understand a little bit of what is happening here. And I think it's especially important because a lot of the Minor Prophets, especially Zephaniah, which we're going to look at today, is written in poetry. And it borrows from like apocalyptic imagery. And it was written thousands of years ago. And so ancient poetry with apocalyptic literature sometimes makes it very difficult for modern readers to really understand what is going on there. In fact, my suspicion is that many of us have tried to open up one of the minor prophets and think, okay, 
you know, I like, to, I like to claim that I've read books of the Bible. This is only three chapters long. I'm going to claim I read a book of the Bible today. And we start reading, and it starts talking about fires and burning and angry gods. And we think, I'm going to go read Matthew again. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. This is crazy. But we also think probably, I think, that this God sounds so unbelievably different than the tender, caring Jesus. And I like the tender, caring Jesus better than the fire-breathing dragon from heaven that God appears to be in the Old Testament. We do this work of accidentally assigning bad guy characteristics to God. We don't want God to feel like that. And so we either pass over it or we make grand sweeping assumptions about God. This has actually been dealt with in church history. There was a heresy in the early church called Marcionism where there was this belief that the Old Testament God was different than the New Testament God, and that was flatly rejected by the scriptures, that there is a consistency in the Old Testament and New Testament God, and that what we see in Jesus is the God who is in the Old Testament. But how could that be if he's trying to burn fire on his own people all the time? It's really difficult to reconcile these sort of things. And so rather than making God the bad guy because he cares, carries our typical bad guy characteristics in our concepts of media, let's try to dig in and see if treating this as poetry, and even at times apocalyptic poetry, could help us just a little bit. So Zephaniah. We're going to look at this, this book today. My goal was, we're doing two weeks of the Minor Prophets. My goal was next week we're going to do Malachi, which leads right into the New Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. made sense as we were leading into the birth of Jesus. And this week, I thought I'd take a book that I figured no one knew anything about. So if you are a Zephaniah scholar in here, I'm really sorry I missed the mark with you. But most people, I think, are kind of distant from the book of Zephaniah. So I thought it would be fun to deal with it. Here's the situation in Zephaniah. We have a prophet come on board, and we're already given mixed signals as to whether or not he's a good guy or bad guy. Zephaniah is a prophet. We're told he's the son of Cushi, which immediately tells us that he's at least partially African. He's partially African. But he also comes just a couple generations after Hezekiah, who was one of the only good kings in the history of the kingdom of Judah in the Old Testament. And so you've got a descendant of a good king who also appears to be descendant of Africa prophesying in the time of Josiah, who is another good king. In fact, really after David, there's really only two really good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, and Zephaniah's story kind of merges with both of them. Uh, Josiah is a wild story as well. Uh, Josiah is a good king. I'll tell you why he was a good king in just one moment. But Josiah rises to the throne in the most compelling and fascinating of ways. His dad was the king, Amon, A-M-O-N. He was the king for all of two years. You can probably guess that if you've been king for two years, some bad things happened to you, whether it was an illness and you died or you were killed. Amon was killed. Not in battle, not by a foreign country, by his own men in his own castle. And when Amon is killed, he's laying in cold blood, all of his men look around and say, well, who are we going to make king now? Josiah. There's one problem with that. Josiah was eight. Eight years old, and he's made king. 
I don't know what you were like when you were eight years old. When I was eight years old, I wanted to play baseball, watch TV, and avoid school. Josiah, now in what I assume is typical eight-year-old boy behavior, is made king over Judah. And Josiah does what I would imagine most eight-year-olds would do. They go with the flow. They watch their dad. They do things that their dad did. There are customs and there are norms. He is not a philosopher at eight years old wrestling with what is good and evil in the kingdom. He does what he has known all eight years of his life. And the problem is what he's known all eight years of his life has been incredible corruption, idolatry, and no concern whatsoever for Yahweh. And so Josiah inherits this pattern and, and the kingdom of Judah is falling rapidly and is in incredible danger of the Babylonians taking over. This is what Josiah inherits. Now Josiah ends up reigning for 31 years. And after years into his reign when he's now an adult, some of his men were digging through the treasury of the kingdom when they came upon upon a book that none of them had ever read before, and neither had Josiah. And so they brought it to him and read it to him. Most people believe that what was read to him was the book of Deuteronomy as we know it. Now, if you know anything about Deuteronomy, this is Moses' second telling of the law. He's repeating and restoring among the people who it is they're supposed to be, what laws they're supposed to follow, how it is they're supposed to live as God's chosen people. And the king had never heard of it before. I think Think about how problematic that is. The king had never read the law before. And he hears this reading and he starts freaking out. Whoa, if that's who we're supposed to be, we aren't doing that. And so he leads a reform across Judah. He starts throwing out all of the idols of the temple. He starts restoring Moses' vision that God has given them for who they're supposed to be as Israel. And the question that rises, that Zephaniah asks is, is it too late? And how radical a change do they need to go through before the day of the Lord comes and Babylon takes over? To break this video down, I'm going to show you a short five-minute video done by the Bible Project that goes through the three chapters and does it in an artistic way. So check out the story of Zephaniah, if you will, in this video. The book of the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was when King Josiah had attempted to bring about real change in the land by removing idols and restoring the temple to the worship of Israel's God alone. But Israel was just too far gone. Worshiping other gods was too entrenched in the life of the people. And it ended up that Josiah's pride led him to a tragic death on the battlefield as he set Jerusalem on a collision course with Babylon. And Zephaniah, he had seen all of this coming. For years, he had been warning the leaders of Jerusalem. And this little book is a collection of his poetry summarizing his message. It's designed to have three main parts. The first focuses on the day of the Lord's judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. The second part is about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations and Jerusalem again. And then the third section explores the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem on the other side of God's judgment. The first section opens with the shocking reversal of Genesis 1. 
So God's good, ordered world is going to descend back into disorder and darkness and chaos, becoming uninhabitable once again. And as you keep reading, you realize Zephaniah is developing all of these powerful poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All of the city's institutions for worshiping the gods of the Canaanites will be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrated injustice, all the economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, all of it will be gone along with the city's walls. Zephaniah develops these almost apocalyptic images to show the significance of what's going to happen. It all refers to a great army that is coming to take out Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Zephaniah never mentions whose army God's going to use to bring this judgment. Now we know from the other prophets, Micah or Habakkuk, that it's Babylon. But Zephaniah never mentions that. And it's because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate, but in the closing poem of section 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would seek the Lord. And he says these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they repent. In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines or Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance. And he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupt and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as his people anymore. And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the land, which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nations, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified family. And that after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that God would find a way to bless the nations and Jerusalem as well. The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nations. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is a poet who wants to sing too. Your God will live among you and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images about God gathering up into his his family, the outcast and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's how the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate the horrible things that humans do to each other and to his world. But he brings his justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together 
They contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah is all about. So you see the book moves from fire to hope, right? And we're going to read here just a little bit of the text from chapter 1 that, that seems so deeply terrifying, this description of the day of the Lord. And as we're moving towards Advent and Christmas, we, we imagine and think about the day of the Lord being this day where Christ returns and all is made right and the hope of the world is made known. And so often when we think about the day of the Lord, we think of that. Uh, and that's good news. And then we wonder, is it different than the day of the Lord here? Because I'm about to read some scripture to you. I'm going to invite you to stand. And then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. You're going to say, thanks be to God. But I don't think you're going to want to say, thanks be to God. <laughs> because it's some scary stuff. But yet, let's see if we can find the hope in it together. Would you join me in standing as we read from chapter 1 of Zephaniah? Starting with verse 7 and then on to verse 12 through the end. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, their entrails like fifth, filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed for he will make a sudden end to all who live in the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, we read a text like this, and I think it's really tempting to assign bad guy traits to God. Who goes in sacking a city, burning it down, who says the whole world will be consumed and acts like that's the sort of thing that a good guy does? There's some real Thanos-like energy to that. What is happening here? How can God possibly be, be the good guy utilizing language such as this? Well, when I read about this sort of destruction and this sort of fire my initial inclination is to be terrified. The day of the Lord sounds terrible. But then I think about the aspen tree. Do you know anything about the aspen tree? Probably not. They're not here. They're not indigenous to Maryland. But the aspen tree is really a different kind of tree than so many trees. You see, most trees, when we watch on the news and we see western wildfires just consuming towns and national parks and 
tree forests, we think, oh, what a terrible and horrible thing. But the same is not true for the aspen. The aspen actually thrives on fire. It thrives on fire for a couple reasons. One is that uh, deciduous trees, when they start making their way into the aspen forest, they start sucking the nutrients that aspens need and covering them with shade so that they can't grow. When a fire comes through, it consumes most of the trees in the forest, but the aspen tree doesn't die. It stands firm in the midst of fire. In fact, the fire that comes through that takes out the other trees around it actually give the aspen tree a chance to thrive because if a fire doesn't come along, the other trees overtake it and kill it because its nutrients can't be had. And so the aspen tree also doesn't become consumed quite the opposite up to temperatures of like a thousand some degrees, they survive through the fire and it actually creates within it an ability to multiply. The fire actually allows it to regenerate in a way that it can't without the fire. So not only does the fire purify the forest for the aspen tree, it actually creates within it an ability to reproduce itself. The fire is bad news for all that's extra but it gives life to the aspen tree and it removes all of the extras around that are trying to kill it that the aspen itself cannot undo. And so what if this day of the Lord, and we have hints as we read through chapter two, the nations around are angering God. Jerusalem angers God again and we get to the end of this book and we're given this incredible image of hope that one day the faithful remnant that remain inside of this destruction will rise up and receive Jerusalem as the gift that it was meant to be. That those who are poor and hopeless and broken and hurting and repentance will be able to once again take a refined Jerusalem made right. The Jerusalem, the temple as is, was wrong And it was creating as much destruction within the people as it was giving life. Kings were being murdered over how off course Jerusalem had become. It needed a full purification. And so when we hear these stories of fire in the Old Testament, being that there's a bit of an apocalyptic nature to it, it's not meant to be read literally. That God is going to tear the heavens open and blow a consuming fire and watch people die but instead using imagery more like the idea of the aspen or how gold is refined and made pure and made valuable while being pushed through a fire. The fire is meant to purify that which is extra that is actually grabbing hold of God's people and sucking its life dry from it. And so in this story, we read immediately and we read with our modern eyes and we begin assigning bad guy quality to God And we begin saying, why would a good and loving God burn down his people just because they made a couple mistakes? It doesn't make sense. It especially doesn't make sense in light of Jesus. But what if this concept of Old Testament poetry with apocalyptic uh, uh, concepts written into it isn't meant to be read literally in a way that says God is trying to destroy you, but that God is trying to destroy what is destroying you? God is trying to send a fire to get rid of the idolatry that kings are putting in your way. In a world where we have so many things that are dividing us and causing us to look elsewhere for our salvation, 
when we have politics that are trying to destroy us, we have fighting, idolatry, sin, brokenness, poverty, war all around us. And all of these things seem to be destroying us more than bringing life to us. On the day of the Lord, the all-consuming fire of God is meant for those things and not his people. It's an attempt to purify the world that has been so wrecked with sin that it's misguided his people. We begin to cling to things that are not that of God. And what seems to be happening in Zephaniah's prophecy is that in this case, Babylon is coming. And Babylon is going to knock Jerusalem to the ground. And sure enough, that will happen very shortly after the ink dries on this book. They'll go into exile and it'll be punishment for the sin of God's people. They are punished, but they are also purified. In the way they return, when you read the stories of their triumphant return and how happy they were to hear the law once more on the other side of exile and how deeply moved they were to restore and rebuild the temple. It was a time of discipline that brought them to that. So I want to invite you to read the Bible with different lenses, stories like Zephaniah. If we read with our normal categories of good guy and bad guy, we begin to fear God in a deeply unhealthy way as if he is the bad guy trying to punish us for our sins and that his wrath is to make us suffer. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think instead... In our attempt to read the Bible through the lens of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, we so desperately want to identify with the good guy that we very rarely put a microscope over ourselves and ask ourselves, what if I'm the bad guy in this story? What if it is not God who is bad? What if the reason I read this is so scary is because I'm the one who's sinful and fallen? and distant from God? What if I were to read the prophets and stories like this as a call to get myself right with God, not question God's behavior, but instead say, oh Lord, what have I done to create your anger at the way this world is operating? Because the invitation is to be a repentant remnant, to look at what God is doing and say, we have caused this. Our sin is so great that I need to repent and return to God. And for those of us who are repentant, who recognize that the things of this world will pass away and will trip us up and are, are, are misguiding us and misleading us and causing us into all sorts of destructive patterns of sinfulness, when we begin to see that we are participating in the sin that has created this chaos, that we are the bad guy and God is the good guy, the fire that is coming on the day of the Lord will not consume us, but it'll purify us. It'll make us right. It'll cleanse us of unrighteousness like the aspen or like gold. And the things that have tried to destroy us will be taken away in the apocalyptic fire of God on the day of the Lord. If we see it like that, this God is not too different from that of Jesus the one who confronts our sins but loves us in our brokenness, that yearns to see us restored in hopes that one day we will return to a new Jerusalem where all things are made right, where all idolatry has been purified, sin has been defeated, death has been defeated, 
and life carries on forevermore. Our invitation is to identify with the bad guy so that we might repent and be saved from that which could destroy, is destroying us, but will in one day will be destroyed by the God who makes all things right. There is hope for us in the day of the Lord. It may sound scary, but it only sounds scary if we're not right with God. If we're able to identify our need for repentance, our need to make ourselves right with God, if we become the remnant, we have a Jerusalem that's waiting for us. And the fire that purifies will destroy the things that are killing us in the meantime. It'll take out the sin and destruction and brokenness of the world and it'll leave us in a better state than we could ever get there on our own. It sounds scary, but it's not. It's a word of hope baked in ancient language that's meant to tell us that God is working, maybe not along with our will of how we would do it, but God is working to break apart that which is claiming us, taking us down, breaking us. God is working to make his world right. And sometimes that means discipline. Sometimes that means punishment. But God's hope and direction is always towards a restored Jerusalem, that we would be citizens of God's refined and made right eternity, that we would live well with him under his vision, and that the sort of things that cause us such pain and hurt in this world today would be consumed by the great day of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we conclude today? Lord, we thank you for all that you have done. Today, this message of points could be hard to hear that there's a refining work that you do. But I pray, God, that each person that would hear this in this room or online would hold themselves up against the text and say, what must I do to repent? What must I do to be your child? What must I do to be right with you? And would it be so, Lord, that when your fire comes, that it not consume and destroy me, but instead continue to refine me, to make me right, to purify me, so that I may be among the remnant that enjoys eternity with you, that I would experience the hope that comes with the fire of you making all things right. And may I never find myself standing in your way of setting this world right, but instead may I be an agent of receiving your presence and helping see this world change and turn towards you. We pray this, Lord, in your mighty and good name, the name of Jesus, amen.